Good morning. How's it going? Good. I got a pop and click, and there's all sorts of stuff happening here. My goodness. Um, well, my name's Simon, and apparently I'm the lead pastor here at the church, so kind of crazy. Here we go. Um, <laughs> thank you very much. Um, my family and I have felt the love from the congregation from when we were candidating to when we got here to um, just guys unloading our truck and helping us get the office set up. So thank you so much for all of your help, your prayers, and the love that you've shown us. We are very, very excited to be here, and now we're finally calling this home. We're like, okay, boxes are unpacked. Things are going on the wall. It's actually looking like a house. We're doing it. Um, and I would say this, it's, it's kind of weird, right? Transitions are hard. It's going to be unique. You guys have had a great pastor here for, I think it's 17 years. Um, one of the reasons I was drawn to this church was Mike. Mike's a great preacher. Mike's a great pastor. And uh, it's weird being the guy to come in on the tails of that, like, oh, I'm not going to be as good as him. And he did it this way and he did it that way. And, and I would say this, um, we're different, Right? Mike is different than me, and he does things differently, and, and there's going to be some changes, even things that I don't even know that I'm doing differently, like, that's different. I'm, yeah, probably. It's probably going to be different. Maybe you're like, you've already opened the bulletin, and you're like, it's different. <laughs> Where's my fill in the blanks? I need my fill in the blanks. You get one. One. One big fill in the blank. So you get it. <laughs> But it's not that one is right and one is wrong. And I, I really want you to understand that. Um, it's just different. And I would say this, and it's going to be, it's a two-way street, right? As I come in, I am going to make mistakes. I'm going to mess up. Spoiler alert. I'm going to let people down. I'm not going to do things the best way or the right way. And I'm going to try my best, but I'm going to make mistakes. And I'm going to do things differently. And what I'd ask is this that you would extend me grace, the same grace that Jesus extends to each and every one of us that makes us new in Christ. And in turn, you're going to make mistakes and you're going to do things wrong. And I need to extend grace to you as well. And if we're all extending grace to each other, we're going to model and exemplify more of who Christ is. Because here's what we're about. We love God. We love Jesus. And we want to see the people of this area know Christ. Amen? That's what we want. That's our mission. That's where we're going. And if we're all seeking that out, you know, all the other stuff's going to work itself out, isn't it? So that's what we want to do. I have rambled long enough. I'm cutting into my time for preaching. So we already know there's a problem. It's going to go long. But what I want to do is I want to start us off on our new series. Our new series is called, it's Parables, Vignettes of Spiritual Truth. That's where we're going to be for the next eight weeks. Um, people are coming and going. Even though school's starting, it's still that summer feel and we have plans. And so we're going to ride the wave for eight weeks. That's going to get us to fall. And then we're going to jump into a full book of the Bible. And we're going to just start chugging through a book of the Bible. And you're like, what is it? I'll tell you later. There needs to be some uh, anticipation to make you come back. But where we're going to be is parables, and we're going to just talk about what Jesus said in these parables in the Gospels. Now, the first thing you got to ask is, what is a parable? Like, what, it's, a, it's a weird word. We don't use it on a regular basis. But what is a parable? What does it mean? Well, a parable is simply this, a story or a saying that illustrates a truth using comparison, hyperbole, or simile. 
It can be a model or an analogy or an example. But in general, it's a short moral story that was often expressed with imagery and metaphor. And this is primarily how Jesus spoke. And the further he went along in his ministry, the more he spoke in parables. And you got to start asking, like, why did he do that? Well, parables are designed to make you think. They're designed to have this deep embedded message and everyday understanding examples. So he would use everyday common things that were happening to explain a deeper truth about himself and about his mission. And primarily all the gospels are about him and what he was going to do to save the world. A vignette, you're like, that's a weird word. Are we French now? We're not. It's cool. It's okay. We're still in America. But a vignette is just a French word used to describe a short, descriptive, literary sketch. That's really what it means. Usually, usually with a powerful meaning or message behind it. You know who's really good at this? Pixar. Have you ever watched a Pixar movie? Every single Pixar movie has a short. And it's this really small, quick, little story that's really powerful. And sometimes they're so powerful within four minutes, you're, you're crying by the end. It's like, you know, it's like a Hallmark commercial. You're like, I don't know how they did it, but they did it. It's, just, it's got a lot of power behind it. And this is what Jesus does over and over again. He gives us these short, powerful pictures of deep spiritual truths that we actually have to lay our life over. As we look at it, the Bible reads us. I'll say that a lot. The Bible reads us. We don't read the Bible. It reads our heart constantly, exposing how we're different than God. And we have to lay our life over that, and we have to start asking hard questions about our life, don't we? And the question that we need to ask a lot is this. In light of this truth, how am I living? That should always be the question. When you read God's word, you need to ask, in light of this truth, how am I living? So with that, we're going to open our Bible to a very popular parable. You know, it's hard. The, the first one, you're like, it's got to be perfect. It's my first time here. If I mess it up, I set the tone for the rest of my ministry. What do I do? There's no way of winning, by the way, when you do this. It's just hard. And so I picked one that you probably know. Even if you've never been to church, you're like, I've heard of that parable. Even if you know nothing about God or the Bible, you probably know that parable. So open your Bibles to Luke 15, 11 through 32 is where we're going to be. And we are going to be in the parable of the prodigal son. The title of this sermon is The Heart of God Towards Sinners. And I, that's what I want our focus to be. So as I decided, what are we going to talk about? We want to talk about the gospel. And we want to talk about God and his heart towards those that are away from him. I figured there could be no better way than to start that. So here we go. Let's read along. And he, Jesus, said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of my property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. 
But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us celebrate. For my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they begin to celebrate. Now, his older son was in the field and he came and drew near to the house and heard music and dancing and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you. I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who had devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Let's pray. Jesus, this parable is, has so much power behind it. And there's so much happening. And I know that I'm just going to scratch the surface of what needs to be communicated this morning. But Lord, I do ask that the points that we are making today would hit hard in the hearts of the men and women here. Holy Spirit, I do ask that you would speak through me this morning. That you would use me to communicate to your people the truth of who you are the truth about what your mission is and how you love those that are far from you and are drawing them back to you. Lord, we love you. Pray these things in your glorious and amazing name. Amen. So why does Jesus tell this parable? Why is this parable in this place, in this time, in the context of the ministry of Christ in the book of Luke? Well, he answers it at the beginning. So the beginning of the chapter 15, he actually kind of builds off a couple of different parables. And he says this, this is what's happening. So it says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. That's Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So what's happening in this moment is that Jesus is he's actually talking to the critics that are complaining and grumbling about what he's doing. And the question is this, how could this man of God hang out with dirty, horrible sinners. He should be around the holy people like us. That's really the question that's being asked that's not being asked. 
And so Jesus says, I'm going to give you a parable to answer the question. And he's going to answer the hard hearts of the, of the men that are there. What I love about this right away is we see that there's something different about Jesus. Jesus goes to the marginalized. He goes to the lost. He goes to those that are far from God. Now, people say, well, all you need is love. And Jesus was just about love. And yes, he was. But Jesus never shied away from saying the hard things. He never shied away from calling people out of not trusting God and called them to trust God. He always does that. But yet the way he did it drew people in. You ever thought about that? Like he's saying hard things to people. He's calling people out. And the more he calls them out, the more they come to him. There is something that we can learn from this when it comes to how we bring truth to others. There's something about this that we can learn how to be like Christ in a way where we can love people well, yet call them back to what God would want for them. I love that. But then the religious people, at the same token, were beside themselves. They're like, this is ridiculous. How could he associate with these lowly, horrible, wicked people as if they were above that kind of behavior? But what we see is that this parable he told was to address their hard hearts, to call them out, and to not only call out their hard hearts, but to show the heart of God towards sinners. And at the core of this parable, it should really be called the parable of the loving father because the father is the hero. He is the hero of the story. And what we're going to do is every parable, we need to break down who's in the parable to understand it. Because if you don't understand who everyone is, this isn't going to make a lot of sense. So I'm going to break it down for you, and then we're just going to kind of move through the text. So you've got the father, uh, at the beginning it calls him the man, which I think is funny. But uh, the man, the father, represents God the father. That's who we're talking about. So anytime we talk about the father, we're talking about God. The younger son represents sinners or those that are far from God or those that have moved away from God. And the older son represents the Pharisees, the scribes, and the religious people of that day and age. So I want to start with the younger son. And if you look at the son's arc of his story, it has three major parts. Rebellion, repentance and forgiveness, and rejoicing. So the repentance and forgiveness kind of blend together. So I kind of bulk them as one. But it's rebellion, repentance, rejoicing. That's really the three main parts of this story as we look at it. So let's start with rebellion and what's going on. And I'll say this. Um, as I was studying this passage, I was continually struck over and over again of the power of the story and how ultimately it's all of our stories. It was just, I would listen to it and I would listen to someone like, you know, audibly speak it or I'd read it and I would just, I'd feel this heavy weight. This weight in my life, this weight in my heart that God had done the very same thing to me, that I had wandered far from God, this arrogant, young, pompous boy named Simon that God went and sought out and saved and brought me back to him. And so I look at that and go, I had no need. You didn't, I didn't deserve that. I didn't earn that. You did it because you're good. I had earned what I had earned because that's what I chose to do. But yet God came and found me when I was far off. 
and drew me back to him. And so I go, this is my story. If you're a believer, this is your story. And to be honest, it got, I got a little emotional. I'm like, man, this is heavy. Well, what is rebellion? If you boil rebellion down enough, rebellion is saying that you want to do life without God. Take that as, when we talk about sin, we're talking about rebellion. We're talking about rebellion. We're talking about saying that you want to do life without God. That's really what we're saying at the crux of everything. And this is what the son does, right? The son decides that he wants to do life on his own. He doesn't need the father anymore. He doesn't need his protection. He doesn't need his provision. He doesn't even need or want the relationship with him. Just give me the money that's due to me. And I'm going to be the captain of my own ship. I'm going to be in charge of my life. And I'm going to take off because honestly, I don't need you at all. Isn't this us? I want to be in charge. I want to call the shots. I want to be the one to decide my destiny, my fate. And as long as I'm in charge, everything will be fine. You know, the real problem is someone else is telling me what to do. Parent, boss spouse, whatever it may be, someone's telling you what to do and you're like, if only I was in charge, then everything would be okay. Isn't this exactly what happened in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve? See, we think, oh, they ate this magical fruit that made everything horrible. The fruit's the bad thing. No, the fruit was symbolic of them saying, if I eat this, I can become a god to myself and then I won't need God and I'll be in charge. The taking of that fruit was open, defiant rebellion against the God who loved, cared, and provided for him, just like the father in our story. That's what's going on here. So he leaves and heads away to a faraway country. And I love this idea of the faraway country. It's the dreaming in our heart that there is some place better. If only I could live there, things would be better. Some of you are like, I'm stuck in California. If only I could get out of California, things would be better. I'll go to Arizona, the land of sunshine. We think that, don't we? If only I live in this neighborhood. If only I had this job. And we keep looking and dreaming and thinking that there's something better. If only I had the freedom, then everything would be okay. But here's the thing that we realize quickly. When left to our own devices, we know the outcome. We've seen the outcome. We've seen when I'm in charge and I do things my way, we know what happens. It's modeled by the son in this story. What's he do? He gets to be in charge and he's like, I'm going to have fun. I'm going to do everything that I want to do. And it says he squandered the inheritance. He squandered the property in reckless living. He just went for it. You know, it's, it's interesting. As you look at what this is, it's called the prodigal son. Do you know what prodigal means? Wasteful. The wasteful son. The inheritance, the money is a representation of the life that we've been given from God. That he has given us talents and abilities and gifts to live this way in a life that actually reflects him. And when we don't, it's called wasteful. There is a way that you can live your life, that you can waste the life that God's given you because life is valuable. Life is a gift from God. And there's a way that is actually worthwhile and that is profitable. 
So instead of losing money and being in a deficit, there's a way that you can live that exponentially grows what your life looks like. And that's what's being said in this. Well, what happens to the younger son? Well, as we move into the idea of repentance, you know, I say this all the time. Life's great when things are great. Life's good when things are good, isn't it? Isn't it funny? Like, it's so good. Everything's great. Well, that's usually because everything's great happening in your life. What happens when life is life? Because life goes sideways all the time, right? You lose a job. Your marriage is in trouble. Your kids decide to do things that you wouldn't want them to do. Your spouse does something that you wouldn't want them to do. Someone decides to leave you. Someone decides to sin against you. Someone dies that you love and care about. You know, it's funny. We realize quickly in life that we're not in control of really anything. And these things happen all the time. And life is hard. We we talked about this morning. There's this tragedy that happens in Haiti. What do you do with that when life goes sideways? Maybe yesterday things were great. But now what? Well, this is the sun. Things fall apart. He spent all of his money. Anything that would have helped him, he, he had lost that. Trials came. And his choices, his life led to destruction. Led to being far from God and led to him being in a place that he couldn't imagine. This famine comes. He has nothing. And now he's in need. He turns to his friends, right? His good friends that have been with him for however long it was that they were partying and having a good time. And you look around to your left and your right and suddenly you realize there's no one there. Where'd they go? Where's my entourage? Money ran out. And they were there for themselves and what they could get and what they could leech off of. They weren't there because they loved him. They weren't there because they cared about him. They were there because they wanted something. And when that something ran out, so did they. So now he looks around and he's got nothing to do. Where do I go? What do I, how do I live? And he's like, well, I should probably get a job. You know, it's funny. When you have no money, there comes a point where you go, I should probably get a job. This is every college student's dilemma when they graduate. Now what? (laughs) You work for the rest of your life until you die. That's what you do. That is what you have to end up doing. So he gets this job, and I don't want to go into all the details, but if you read Leviticus 11.7, if you read Deuteronomy 14.8, you will see that this man taking a job working with pigs did not coincide with his, it wasn't kosher. You see that? See what it did there? It wasn't kosher at all. He shouldn't have been doing that. It's a filthy animal. And yet what he does is he takes the job that he can, the most lowly, humiliating job that a Jewish man could take, which is feeding pigs. If you really look at what's happening, because of their their belief system and who they were in God and how God had chosen them. He was rejecting every part of who he was because their belief in God and their culture were so intertwined you could not separate them. So he was denying every fiber and aspect of who he was as a person when he rejected that and decided to move into that. And that's where he was. And he was so hungry. He was so famished that he was looking at the garbage they would feed the pigs and wanted to eat that out of the dirt and the mud. You ever get to a place in your life where you look around and it's like, it seems like the world is imploding on itself and you say, how did I get here? 
How did this happen? What, what, what happened that now I'm in this spot, in this place? I never thought it would come to this. Have you, am I the only one? Am I the only one who's ever thought like, what is going on? And it's all of these little decisions that get you to this place. You don't wake up one day and say, I'm going to freebase heroin. No, it's lots and little choices that get you there. And it's all these choices this man said, I'm going to do life my way and do what I want to do, that he is now in this spot where he is like, I am not even the person that I once thought. I can't look in a mirror and see that. I don't even recognize that person. You ever heard that statement? I don't even recognize the person in the mirror anymore. That's where he's at. Now, verse 17 is like the best part of this. But when he came to himself. Oh, any, I think I said it during the last sermon when I was here. Anytime you see the word but, there's usually like this big transition and God starts working in amazing ways and starts renewing things that are broken and destroyed. It says, but when he came to himself, his eyes were open. He woke up. He remembered. What did he remember? What woke him up? What was the thing that he remembered that woke him up? The father. He remembered the father. He remembered the father's love. He remembered the father's generosity. He remembered the father's grace and mercy and provision and kindness. That's what woke him up. It wasn't anything that he did. It was the memory of something great and good and amazing that woke him up to go, what's going on? What am I doing? Are you far from God? Here's the best part about being me right now. I don't know any of you. And I don't know where you are. So I can make crazy statements that might be exactly where you are. And it's not personal because I don't know you. That's the Holy Spirit convicting. If I'm saying something right now, you're like, oh, that's me. Then stop. Acknowledge the work of the Holy Spirit and listen and repent. Are you far from God? Are you in sin? Have you stopped trusting God in some area of your life? Are you in a place where you're in rebellion? Where you think that you just need to be in charge? Are you in a dark spot? Well, what I would want to do for you today is to remind you of our Heavenly Father. I want to remind you of a God that loves you, that cares for you, that pursues you, that has gone to great lengths to save you so you wouldn't have to be punished, so you wouldn't have to be in that situation, that a God that wants to bless you, that a God that is generous, that a God that is kind, that a God that keeps chasing after you no matter how many foolish decisions that you make. And all he is saying is, turn to me. Look to me. A God that is slow to anger and quick to forgive. He welcomes you back. Call out to him. And this is what the son does. This is the model that we have. The son owns his sin. He acknowledges his failure to trust and love God with his life. He notes that I'm not even worthy to be your son. This is the, the very posture of humility, right? 
I don't even belong, I don't even, I shouldn't even be near you, God. I can't be calling you my father because I have messed up so poorly. I have made so many poor choices. I have dishonored you, disrespected you, rejected you. I shouldn't even be near you. I love that he's like, I shouldn't even be your son. I should be your servant. He looks at his master where he's feeding pigs. He's like, my father is so much better than this master. What's he saying? My father is so much better than the life that I pursue. God's ways are better than my ways. You will always serve a master. You will. No matter what you do or where you go, you will serve a master. Which one will you choose? He realized that his master was horrible, that his master couldn't deliver, that his master was unkind, didn't care about him. But he's thought of his father and how he treats his people. Repentance means that you acknowledge. You acknowledge what the sin is. You know what I love? He didn't make any excuses. Well, you know, I mean, I was trying to be a good financial investor, and so I figured I got the money. I could, make, I could really turn it. He didn't make excuses. With, oh, man, this downturn of this famine really got me. No. No excuses. He just owns it. Then he stops. And then what I love that he does, turn to something better. See, that's the thing. There's nothing he's really doing. You acknowledge, you stop, and you turn to which is better. You know why? Because if you keep, if you just like acknowledge and then stop and stay there, eventually you're still facing the thing that you want to stop doing and you'll start to do it because it's comfortable. It's known. It's easier. You have to turn to something better. And that's what he does. He stops. He's like, what am I doing? He acknowledges. He gets up. And then he does what? He turns something better. He turns back to his father and where he lives and he goes to him. Now, we got to look at the father's response. If he's the hero, how does the father respond in this story? What does the father do? Where is he? He's waiting. He's waiting for his son. He's looking for his son. He's thinking about his son. He's wanting him to return to him. Like that's what he's doing. He's like, he allowed his son to go to see that there was a problem. He sees him. He doesn't Make him grovel, like, okay, I'm going to stand up here in my high... You, you, get, you get yourself over here, son. You come up, get down on my feet, tell... I'm dumb, you're smart. None of that stuff. You know, is that, is that what he's going to do? He's going to humiliate his son even further? I told you, I told you, this is what you get. No. He doesn't do that. He doesn't make him beg at his feet runs to him. He goes to him. He doesn't wait for the son to get to him because the son can't get to him. He runs to the son. He embraces the son. He hugs the son. He weeps over the son. You know what the crazy part is? In this city, the city had the right to stone him to death based on the law for dishonoring and rejecting his father. The city could have come out and be like, well, grab a rock. Here we go. But what does the father do? Think about this. He runs to the son. So if he ran to the son before he gets into the city, 
What's between the son and the punishment of rejecting his dad? The father. The father stands between. He would take the punishment if they decided to punish the son. This is what Jesus does for us on the cross. We have earned the wrath of God for rebelling against him. And yet Jesus comes and takes our place and takes our punishment. See, the Father is modeling what grace looks like, what love in action looks like. And I love that he meets him where he's at. This is what Jesus, Jesus meets us where we're at. He doesn't make us try to do all the right things before we can come. Like people are like, I got to get my stuff together. Then I'll come to church. I'm like, you're missing the point. You'll never get all your stuff together. The whole point is that you can't and he can and he did. So now you can come and be a part of family. That's the idea. That's what he's done. I love that he doesn't say, I told you so. I love that he doesn't give his son the look that only a father can give his, that look that your son hears a thousand words. You know that look? You're like, oh, he looked at me. What does that mean? You know what he was saying. He doesn't do that. He just loves him. And he does something that's pretty amazing. He does the best thing he can, which is give him human interaction, right? There's an actual thing happening. Like, a letter's nice. Letter's nice. Phone call's nice. Zoom's nice. Nothing takes the place of human interaction. Nothing takes the place of physical contact with human beings. We are relational beings created by a relational God that reflect Him. What did, what did God do? He came in flesh to us to give us the human interaction to touch us, to embrace us, to care for us, to talk to us, to weep with us, to laugh with us, to mourn with us. He gave us the best thing he could give, which is human interaction. It's amazing what he's done. And this says the father was full of compassion. What does that mean? It just means he was deeply moved. You know, that when, you, when, you know when you're so moved that you feel it in the pit of your stomach? You're like, ugh. That's how the father felt towards the son. He says, dress my boy in the finest clothes. He walked back. He was probably still covered in the filth from the pigs. His clothes were probably very tattered and disgusting. He probably smelled horrible. Why has he put on new clothes? It's a new position. He's making him a new man. You ever see someone get dressed up? You're like, you look like a new man. Got dressed up. You look different. You're presentable. And that's what God does. He cleans us up. He makes us a new man. He makes us a new woman. That's what he does. He gives us this new standing and position. He gives us the ring. The ring was the full access of being a son of the father to utilize any of the resources that he has available to him. He's reinstated, brought back to where he should be. And then there's rejoice. The father responds after getting his son back to throw a huge party, right? Tell everyone that my son is back. Tell everyone that my son was dead. Tell everyone that he's alive. That's verse 24. I love it. And it ends with this twice, by the way. It says, for this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they begin to celebrate. 
This is great news. This is wonderful. That's why this parable should be called the parable of the loving father. This is God's heart to those that are far from him. He loves you and wants you to return to him, to repent and be a part of the family. The father allowed the son to make a mess of his life so he would see that being with the father is better. And that is how loving God is, that he will allow you to make your own foolish choices so you can see that it never leads to the joy you're looking for. And the contrast will draw you back to him. You see what he, how good he is? Even in allowing us to walk away, he loves us in that way. Instead of having a funeral, they had a feast. I read this great quote by Warren Worsby this week. It says this, We are not saved by God's love. We are saved by his grace. Grace is love that pays a price. I'm like, oh. It's like, well, I love you as someone is dying in front of you. Like, is that really love? It's love that pays a price. That's grace. Love motivated him into action. His son died in our place so we wouldn't have to. He offers his grace to anyone who would call in the name of Jesus for salvation. Even today, you can do this just like the prodigal son did and acknowledge Stop, confess, and turn to something better. And the Father welcomes you to his family with a new identity. First John 1 John 1.9 says that, right? He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is the promise of the Father. As I was reading, I thought, man, there's just so much going on here. And the, the natural tendency is to jump around through Scripture, but I'm like, oh, I don't want to jump too much, but there's a couple things that stood out. It seems like there's this, there's this problem with the prodigal, and Jesus answers that through John 14, 6. John 14, 6 says, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I want to do a comparison just really fast and shoot by it, but I want you to see what Jesus is saying. The prodigal, he was lost. What does Jesus say? I am the way. The prodigal, he was ignorant in what he did and believed lies. What does Jesus say? I am the truth. He was dead. And Jesus says, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You see how he's weaving it all together. And this is a great story. And this is like where you want to like, and let's pray and end. Like, wouldn't that be the best story to finish? Like right there? We can't. Because there's this other problem. There's this other group of people that haven't been addressed. The older son. Remember, he represents the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious people of that day. He comes back from a hard day's work of helping his father and doing what he needs to do. He hears the music in the day. He's like, hey, what's going on? This sounds good. Is there a party? What's happening? And then a servant comes and is like, oh, great news. Your brother's back and your dad's throwing him a party. He's like, what? What are you talking about? His response anger. It's not fair. I will not 
go in and be a part of this celebration. It's an outrage. What does the father do? You know what I love? The exact same thing he did with the prodigal. He goes out to meet him where he's at. He seeks him out. He pleads with him truth. He explains what's happening. I love you, son. Like, don't, what are you doing? No, this is good. This is a great thing. Repent. Well, what's the son do? Uh-uh. He does what we all do, the compare game, right? I have always served you. I have always done what you asked. I've never rebelled. Where's my party? Where's my friends? Like there's like this like moment where he's kind of throwing a little bit of a fit. This isn't fair. This isn't right. And then he points out the faults of the son to make sure that the father understands the, the gravity of the situation here. This son of yours, not acknowledging that he's even a part of the, this son of yours went out and wasted your money sleeping with prostitutes. This is how you reward that behavior. Wow. Don't we do this all the time with God? Don't we play this game? Maybe, maybe secretly when something good happens to somebody who you don't think deserves something good, you're mad. God, they need to be punished. How come they're getting good? What about mine? How come it's not? How about, how about good things are happening to me? Like maybe I should just live crazy and then I could get all those blessings too. It's not fair, God. I follow you. How come you're not doing that with me? I want to remind us of a little thing called grace. By definition, grace means getting what you don't deserve. You did not deserve to be saved by God. You did not deserve his mercy. You did not earn any favor with God. God did everything. You just let the grace happen to you. That's what happens. Every single one of you at some point in your life were saved by grace if you've been saved. Here's the thing that I think that we forget. God saves different people at different times. You may have just been saved earlier. Praise the Lord. But it doesn't stop with you. It doesn't end with you. He's still saving more people. He's still drawing people towards him. And what you should remember is that God is a God that is continually saving. And you should be celebrating with the rest of the household. Instead of being like the, young, the older son who's like, well, that's just not fair. Until they grovel up to the level that I think is necessary, then they can be brought back in. I even love that the father, when he's talking to the son, says, and your brother. He didn't say my son. He said your brother. What does that mean? That we are all children of God and God is pursuing all of us. And if you're a parent, your love isn't divided into percentages with your kids. <laughs> You love all your kids 100%. And that's what God is doing with us. He's living us all 100%. So why does Jesus spend time with sinners? Because the heart of the Father is that all would return back to the Father and be a part of the family. 
And what he's saying to the Pharisees is really important here. And I want you to hear this. To reject reject the heart of the Father is to reject the Father. And what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, if you're not on board with God saving the lost and bringing them back, then you're not a part of my family and you're not a part of my inheritance. This is why the Pharisees were furious with him. Because he was calling them out on their hardened, broken hearts as though they were holier than everyone else, even holier than God himself. The one who was actually offended was showing grace. Some of you may know the Lord's Prayer. Some of you have memorized it, and usually we memorize it, and we stop at verse 13. But 14 and 15 say a couple of important things right after that. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Grace transforms the way we think. The gospel transforms our very heart and our very nature. If you can't forgive somebody something small and little, after you've been forgiven something huge, Do you understand the gospel? Do you understand grace? That's what what he's saying. The question stands for us today. We have two questions in two categories. For non-Christians, for those that haven't surrendered to Jesus. Jesus is calling you to him right now. Jesus is seeing you in the state that you're in and is pursuing you and running towards you and calling you to him. Will you, right now, this very moment, surrender to Jesus? Will you bow a knee to Christ? As Christians, will you celebrate that God is saving the lost or will you think that it's unfair? Will you pout? Will you complain? Will you play the compare game? At the end of the day, God wants you to know his heart towards sinners. This is the mission of God. This is the mission of the church. Where are you in that? Because here's the thing. God doesn't need you to be a part of his mission, but he, he lets us be a part of it. He calls us to be a part of this great transformation of men and women that were dead to become alive. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for this parable. Lord, I love that it doesn't have an ending, which means that there is a a decision that has to be made, that there's a choice that must be made of where we will stand and what we will do. Lord, work on our hearts. Help Help us to make the choice to trust you, to follow you, to not be in rebellion against you. Soften our hearts. Use us for your kingdom work. Let us take on the heart of the Son and the heart of the Father, which is about the mission of saving men and women that are far from him. We love you, Jesus. We pray all this in your name. Amen.